Welcome to 239 Uncensored. Everything Southwest Florida and beyond with your host, Tim Jurad. This podcast covers it all. Real talk on issues from real estate to real crime. Join the discussion on hot topics to politics. Don't get left behind. Be in the know about everything Southwest Florida and beyond. Welcome, welcome, welcome to 239 Southwest Florida and beyond. And we have a really, really neat guest. Let's go over to him real quick. Tim McBride. Hello. Tim is Saltwater Cowboy, author of Saltwater Cowboy. And put that book up there for us. Tim is good. And Tim reached out to me, Tim, and we're going to talk a lot about the book and uh, obviously uh, a lot of the, about the life right uh, here in Collier County, down right. Everglades, Chuckalusky. Late 70s through the 80s-ish yeah. when, yeah. It, when it was, you know, yeah. Dodge City. It was wild down there. It was before <laughs> I got here a little bit. I got here in, in right in 90, early 90, right. uh, 91, 92. But we we had a good co- phone conversation a couple weeks ago, and you actually stumbled across one of our podcasts, uh, Captain Tom Store, yes. super guy, one of my best friends. Yes. You called and had a we had a great conversation, and you're like, hey, what the captain said was it was pretty legit, but I got some really good stuff. Right, right. And you know, he, like, how'd that go? Like we talked, like we said, we mentioned to one another at that time. You know, he's spot on with regards to, you know, from his version of what 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 took place. And then, and at that period of time, he was talking about you know a lot of plane landings out in what we called the um, the tram, right. the the, Ever, um, the the estates out off of Everglades Boulevard that they developed you know, in, in lieu of trying to get the city to go that direction. So they were abandoned roads for the longest time. I mean, a lot of them still are. There was no connection between Everglades Boulevard to get across I, I-75 or Alligator Alley to get to that section. So a lot of those uh, roads, there was nobody living out there. So you could put smudge pots down those roads and land planes. And that's what they were doing in those days. But basically, you know, through the through his reign, which was, you know, I guess predominantly through the 70s and late 70s, the... Uh, you know, the Colombians at that time, you know, and the people dealing with the, the Cubans in Miami. And a lot of times the Colombians never dealt with the, with the, with the Cubans directly. There was always somebody in the middle like myself, like a gringo, because they just cause they, they couldn't work together. Right. I mean, it was a, you know, a bloodbath. Yeah, I, I know that not all <laughs> Latinos think of themselves as all one, right? They don't trust one another, <laughs> right. you know, right. particularly when it comes to something such as this, yeah. you know, but that's a whole other, that's another story, you know, that, that involves, you know, how I got him, you know, uh, in, in the position that I wound up finding myself in. But um, what he described, you know, pretty much, yeah, I mean, that's the way they used to, you know, they'd fly it in, they'd use the bigger DC-10s where you could get 10, 12,000 pounds on them. DC-3s, the maximum weight, and I've got a story in my book. That, that talks about these these three guys, you know, chugging in from Santa Marta with six thousand pounds, and that's the limit on a DC three. That's loaded down with, you know, all the fuel you can carry plus the cruise weight, and you're just there, barely at flight limits. Yeah. You know? for, for those that didn't maybe hear the first presentation with Captain Tom Store, right? Right. We're talking about Collier County. We're talking about this place being probably one of the yeah. biggest places that. Drugs were coming into. It was in the dubbed United the States. hub of marijuana smuggling in North America. Yeah, is what it's been dubbed. So, as. so primarily marijuana. Yeah, primarily marijuana. In in your days. Yeah, because you know what, what we were doing, and the reason why the story is is as likable as it is, particularly with a lot of the uh, supervisors for the federal agencies that were involved in our capture, you know, on these different operations, you know, and 
I can think of four right off the top of my head who are really dear friends of mine right now. That's know? interesting, right? Um, yeah, interesting in that in that they understood you know, ultimately what we represented with regards to that industry. I mean, never did uh, did we ever did I ever see a gun as a kid? Never. I mean, that's just the way it was. We were family and generational. I was what the government described as a third generation potholer. That meant that I, my friends and I learned from their fathers, uncles, and older cousins. They in turn <laughs> right. learned from the generation before them, who first generation being a legend, which you may have heard this gentleman's name, uh, Lauren Totch Brown. Right, right, um, yeah. He is an absolute legend in Everglades. Not not for, not for, specifically for that. You know, he kind of renounced that toward the end of his, you know, in his later years. But more for his family being one of the founding families of Chukaluski you know, island, which was back in those days, the only way that they got their supplies and mail was by sailboat from Key West. So he grew up there and he, you know, he learned that area. And, you know, and when you, you learn how to eke a living out of a, an, out of an island among 10,000 islands, you know, I mean, take your average That's Joe. conservative estimate. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Take, take your average Joe and throw him out there in the middle of 41 between Miami and Everglades and say, go ahead, make a living. You know, I mean, how in the hell do you do that? You know, but these people did it. You know, but being that said, you know, Totch wound up, you know, involving some of the second generation, which wound up being what um, the Daniels brothers. There was right. five of them. And they reluctantly jumped on board. And, you know, as the story goes, the youngest brother was Totch's, one of Totch's dearest friends, and Totch taught him. And they're thinking in those earlier days, and we're talking like 78, 79, around in there, um, even maybe as early as 77, these guys jumping on board, you know, and saying, look, dude, they were afraid that, you know, you work with these, you know, these Cuban guys, they just as soon kill you than pay you. Yeah. Well, as it turned out, nothing would be further from the truth. So Craig's coming home with these suitcases full of money and throwing it on the kitchen table. And the brothers are like, you know, they want to shun him from the family. They don't want anything to do with that. And he's like, you know, at least take something and buy your kids some bicycles or something, you know, because it's, you know, there's, I mean, this is just the way it is. Well, Reluctantly, over a period of time, they all relented and wound up coming on board. They became the second generation. They learned from Totch and his friends and that. Now, Totch blazed the trail. He was the, you know, I don't say he was the founding father of cannabis coming into this country because there were a lot of people discovering it and figuring it out themselves. But started he, went, mass, he started mass. mass and working with the Cubans in Miami coming through the Mona and the Windward Passes, which are the east of the Yucatan Pass, the only two ways to get from the Caribbean into you know, uh, the Bahamian waters in, in the Leeward Islands has come through the Mona or the Windward Pass. And they were started coming into Miami and they were having, you know, a little bit of difficulty because all of a sudden that became the cocaine traffickers way of coming through the Caribbean was through those two major passes. The only way to get, you know, beyond Haiti and Dominican Republic and, and the Virgin Islands was to go through one of those two passes. And they had a monitor. And I mean, they're, you know, they're not hard to, hard to monitor. Right. You can shut those yeah. corridors down. Yeah. yeah. So what Totch finally wound up telling these guys was, you know, after trial and error, and he didn't, you know, he didn't go down there his first time, get loaded and come home. He had to find the shit, find out what, you know, what to pay for, what, what to pay the locals, how to process it, how to package it, how to get the boat there on time to get it and to get it back to here. There was a lot of trial and error over several years for him to finally figure this out. Once he did, he opened up this corridor. And when that corridor became plugged up with the cocaine cowboys in Miami started, you know, that was about the time when cocaine started right. becoming prevalent. Right. He said, well, look here, just, you know, bring this shit on over here. You know, Roll this is our this, this is our backyard. This is ten thousand islands. We get it in there. We own the shit. So that started the 
you know, this, the uh, marijuana, Caribbean marijuana coming into Southwest Florida through the Everglades in the 10,000 islands. Now, let me ask you this too. So it goes back to being able to, okay, so you can get it offshore in the 10,000 islands, but you have to know what the heck you're doing to get it into oh, the yeah. drop-off points, right? Yeah. Into oh, to, yeah. to where you could get it on a truck and get it out of there. Right. Well, the this, this scenario as I'm about to impart it to you is how I did it in the book. And it tells right, you, yeah. I tell you, first step- off, put the book up one more time. I'm actually yeah. currently reading or listening to the audio book, but you got to get this book. And, and Tim is great in it, right? He has, you know, a little <laughs> uncensored view on it, but we yeah, go. we got it. Yeah. But you know, you when you get read- it on Amazon, download it on audible it's audible it's, it's a kindle there's an mp3 yes, yes, disc great you know for it's in its second printing this is a uh one of the very rare hard, hard cover copy. editions that is a personal edition of mine that's never been opened past the second page which makes it a rather valuable score plus yeah. i can autograph it and sign it and you know i'm and uh, there are people selling books that don't even look they don't even have the fucking paper cover on them for 250 dollars. wow because it's a rare, if they don't print, there's no more. You right. can't find them anymore. Right. Unbelievable. I have five of them at home that I'm hanging on to, yeah. like, you know, probably till my deathbed. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Or something. But that being said, yeah, I mean, it, it, it takes you through what you began to talk about. You know, you take it from what we, you know, what was described and even still is to those day, to this day, uh, mothership. Right. That's mothership offshore. Offshore. About how far offshore would they go? 30 mile-ish, okay. maybe 32 like that, because that's the territorial water limits right there. And now to what's... get them to come in any closer, it was always a trick to try to do. Right. You know, but there was um, there was a an, an area out there and it was very unique, if you will, for for um, for doing what we were doing now. Um, in during those years and some of the earlier years, there were wars, literally crabbers, stone crabbers shooting at shrimpers because the shrimpers are coming inshore and if they manage to somehow get on one of your trap lines yeah. you know in our stone crab traps in our boat alone the hard times we had six thousand stone crab traps wow. and you know they're about yay big by about this deep by about 20 something inches like this but the bottom six or seven inches of it's concrete at least like, these fuckers weigh like 50 pounds or better and i drop one my you know, there's two pullers on the back of the right. boat. We're taking out traps and laying them out in what we call lines. 300 going one direction for 17, 20 miles. You skip over 50, 75 yards and you pull the other 20 miles back so you're not twice as far away from where you started in order to get 600 traps pulled. And this is how we worked back and forth like this. So the boat designed for hauling tra- crab traps to the grounds to where we're taking them is perfectly designed for <laughs> stacking bales of, of pot on, you know, and it just happened, you know, that's just how it happened, you know. I mean, how many bales are we talking? I know um, people want to know that. So when you go out, you meet the mothership, right? How many boats normally? And I, I know I'm kind of getting into, is it one, two, three, four, five? Can there pull can, off that? There would be, there could be as many as three. I've seen as many as three large. And we had a 51-foot um, marine management, which is a, uh, you know, a bow forward uh, wheelhouse with bunks in the bow, in the, in the wheelhouse. And the entire um, two thirds of the boat is deck for stacking the traps onto. So that gives you that entire deck that gives you around the sides by the windows and on the bow and up on the roof, we stack it just as high, just high enough for the radar to turn, you know, gotcha. and you put 40,000 pounds on this boat 
and it starts to take it down like this into the water. And any more than that, you have to start plugging the what's called the scupper holes. Right, because that's where it, if those go into water, dude. So does the boat. You know? So <laughs> we were very cognizant about being careful, you know, keeping an eye on the scuppers, and, and we knew about what where the water lies with the scuppers about relative to how much we had on the boat. So visually, you didn't worry about anybody even seeing you. you no, like, no, no. It's it's all nobody would you wouldn't see boats at all down there. No enforcement. No. I mean, that's what I talk <laughs> when I yeah. talk to this, uh, you know, Sergeant Sword. Is his well, name? Like, Captain Store. Yeah. Captain Cap Store. Store. Where in the hell were you guys? <laughs> it was, it just, yeah. You know. But um, that being said, you know, we'd take two or three boats sometimes because the boats that we're approaching and we're depending on where in the Caribbean they're coming from, whether it be Jamaica, Venezuela, Colombia, Central America, you know, um, Belize, Honduras, or someplace like that. Um, I've seen boats out there, freighters actually, with as much as two and three hundred thousand pounds of wow. Caribbean weed on them, and we would go out two or three nights in a row just to get three boats, just to get this freighter unloaded. So the freighter would be sitting out there. Freighter be sitting out there, but see what I was going for earlier is the fact that the, because of this war that was going on between the shrimpers and the crabbers, they ultimately came came upon a div, a divider line. You don't come within 30 miles of the shoreline and you won't interfere with our stone crabbing and we won't go beyond that and risk our stone crabs and our buoys being scopped up and goobled up and thrown into piles of a hundred that you'll never get apart, you know, by shrimp boats. So we made that boundary. So when you look at the radar at night during season, you see hundreds of dots out there of fish boats, of uh, shrimp boats of different sizes. That's where the mothership sits among all those radar blips <laughs> right and and looking back probably in those days you know with captain they probably didn't have the resources to go out in in mass you know i know we had coast guard right right yeah but they just there was coast guard you know but down as far as we were right you're on, like, on the shoreline yeah i mean we're getting down to where there was two marine patrol officers in town yeah one worked evening and one worked knew in the after, you know, during the day. And we knew where they were at all times because it doesn't take you but set somebody outside their house and keep <laughs> an eye on it. Well, and, and that brings up the point I told you earlier that you didn't know, but I was in the Florida Marine Patrol a little bit later in 1990. Right. Right. So they, when I went to the academy. Like, Did they hey, give you a heads up? They give, they give me a heads up. But like I told you, I had some boating experience, but not right. boating experience to navigate. Right, you know, down in the ten thousand islands. Right. That's See, that's how all that works. That, I used to hear, I used to hear engines, and I used to hear motors offshore. Um, maybe that some of the drug dealing was still going on, but you know, a lot of them out there fishing, crabbing, things right. like that. Well, it, you know, if it, if you ask me, if there was, they're absolutely out of their fucking minds because when it came time, and we'll get to how it all came down, you know, for yeah, us as kids. Yeah. We'll get to that, you know, and how stringent the law became. I mean, almost overnight, they were giving out mandatory minimum sentences of uh, one indictment was a 40-year mandatory to life. Yeah. And that happened. We didn't even know it took place, you know. So that's how they decided that, you know, the the um, the punishment that they were, you know, handing out prior to that wasn't having the desired effect, you know, that they yeah. hoped it would. Yeah. And uh, it's an interesting story about that as well. But I want to get back to the, you know, the bringing yeah, this stuff back into shore. Let's bring that up. Here, we yeah. go out in several of these large crab vessels and we'll take on 20 tons. You know, we won't take on nearly as, as much as, you know, like 
the capacity that we could. We we need a little bit of running time. We need to be able to run because everything that goes offshore and comes onshore has to be done between sundown and sunup. So we run off, we start loading these boats. We'll get 20 tons. They'll get 20 tons. And the other boat will get 20 tons. So we've got, we've got 60, 60 tons, tons of shit coming in on three boats. And I have seen it at any one, at one time that every house that had a dock and that, that was on the water on Chukaluski, 129 acre Island had pot in it. <laughs> Just loaded up. We would bring it inshore on our big boats. Mm-hmm. And there's and like, it's like you alluded to, the boats coming through the Caribbean, of course, it's hidden below deck, you know, obviously. But when it gets offshore, the sh- crews on the boats that we're going to meet, our crews get on top of those vessels and help them get it up and on deck so we can get down below and help. You know, yeah. they throw it and we can stack it. So we're inside their boat and they build working our asses off. And this is not, you know, go out there and, hey, dude, how you doing? This kind of shit. It's no, it's like, it's, just get this shit off the boat and get it into shore. And you work and you haul bales and you throw a bale, you throw a bale, you puke, and then you throw some more bales. That's just how, I mean, and then you take your turn in and out of the hole because it's hot down there. That stuff is becoming to heat. It's coming to heat up like self-combust for, does. For, for men. For many. <laughs> exactly. And it's dusty. And it's, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just and the engines are running 24-7 in these freighters. They don't turn them off. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. And um, so we get enough on deck that we Do think, you remember it? Do you, I mean, you're, like in your mind right now, when we're oh, talking I'm about it. I'm feeling it. it. I'm you smelling it. it. I'm, <laughs> I'm watching my skin turn brown from the resin dust that's floating through the air in the bilge of these boats because we didn't realize this till after a few days of working. We got home to take a shower, and I got my shit off, and I've got a farmer tan. I haven't been in the sun. And when I took my shorts and my boots off, I was almost black. And it took about four days of showering before that stuff started to come off because, Scrape you know, it off. Uh, cannabis resin isn't water soluble right it's it's oily you know then so i looked like and it started it didn't come off all at once it was coming off in patches you know but that's just exposure to i mean right. that's just part of the game that we right. play right but we get it on our boat and we chug it into shore and we're not doing anymore and that boat's not doing four knots i mean it's i mean we got 30 miles or so to go and we've got you know we usually start about three or four hours prior to sundown so we've got a little bit of time through the sun to get orient, oriented and get the load starting coming down. So we've got plenty of time to get into shore because we have to get it into shore. And when we reach the outer edge of the 10,000 islands, we kill our engines. That's when 25, 30, and 40 of these smaller, shallow okay. drafting boats come out and like flies on a garbage can. They come up, two guys on a boat. They're like mullet skiff type of thing? Well, in the earlier days, when the older generations were working as kids, as asses off, they were a lot of mullet skiffs because they were right. the shallow drafters. Right. And uh, they were using what, um, what was called a T-craft. The Morgan? And, well, yeah, well, Boo and his brother, we were making custom boats for the, <laughs> yeah. with those guys. Uh, and I don't want to drag them too much further into this, but yeah, they were they were making boats that nice were, were boats. specifically <laughs> designed for what it is we were doing. Right. Um, and it's funny you should mention that because it's, most people aren't privy to that. <laughs> the Morgan, well, when you, the when Morgan you, brothers. When, yeah, when you're in the Marine Patrol, they give you just enough nuts and bolts to like say that might be one that yeah might be one. And yeah again you, i got the back end of glance it. over there every now and then yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great but, but, that's, but, but when you but when you work down there you know you're by yourself you know so it's not like you're just gonna go out there and roll you know you gotta be careful oh yeah yeah because <laughs> it's yeah. like you me the water 
in in right. jail. So. Well, what people like you know need to understand with regards to the geography of the of where it is we're talking about um, the ten thousand islands. And if you Google this, you will see for yourself exactly what it was that the law enforcement had to contend with. And this was literally. Mother Nature built this wonderful labyrinth in our backyard. And this is where we goofed off and played and ran around as kids. And we knew this fucking place like we knew it, like you know your own backyard. Yeah. And it's all done by visual cue. You know, you got to remember, turn at this. Treetop. Turn at this. Light. And it's always changing, you know, because they're mangrove islands. And sure. any significant storm event that takes place, an island's going to shift or change. So if you're not always constantly running through these passes and creating these little areas to get through and get out of, uh, if I went down there today, it would be totally changed. We'd probably still be there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... You know, ironically enough, a lot of my buddies have turned to being guides and backwater guides and, you know, swamp buggies and airboat tours and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And they're using the areas that and then the little cutouts and haunts that we used to use as smugglers through that, you know, to get from one little area to another. And it's pretty funny that they should be doing that. You know? Yeah. But um, um, once those little boats grab it from us, they take it and they make as many trips through the islands. And we're talking about 25 or 30 mile stretch of coastline that is speckled with literally 10,000 plus islands. And at its deepest point from outside to the inside where Chukaluski was an inner island, you're probably talking about three miles of, of waterway you got to navigate through to guess to get to the main island. And that's where the shit's going because we have a crew standing there on the dock, the bail handlers, standing at somebody's house where we literally pull those T-crafts or those Mogergens or those um, uh, well, boat, well boats up there and start throwing the bales and they start running them and stacking them in this house where we've literally taken all the furniture out of. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and stack it full to the, to the brim from the dining room, kitchen, bedroom, living room, closets, bathrooms, and get to the front door and shut it. And if there's more coming, move to Teddy's house next door and start filling that one. You know, and it was just literally how it happened. And the drivers who drive this shit, and, and this is this is why we were considered masters of hide in plain sight. The stuff come in at night from sundown to sun up. By the time the sun comes up, it's got it's in that house. It's closed, doors closed, and everybody's off and home sleeping or whatever. And that's when the cars and the vans and the trucks and the and the and the um, Broncos with the blacked out windows and stuff start showing up, you know, at intervals. Because now the shore crew and everybody working has, and we had over 200 of these, two-meter radio. Okay. With the, with the five-digit yeah. combination, which at that time were virtually unscannable. Right. And we could just pick a combination, and everybody just talk. Just, you know I mean? If you had a problem, you talk, and you told, because communication was key. So what they were doing was, now while we're loading was, that. Not to cut you off, but was there any no. time where, like, the police were coming, and you guys had to let everybody know that or you just don't remember a lot of that no there was never it, it, surprisingly enough it, it never obviously how you get into everglades and then get into chuckalusky right by the time you get there it's yeah there had been actually there one one point in time when just curious about we were, all that we were ready to bring in th i think it was nearly forty thousand, nearly 22 tons of, of stuff <laughs> And we're, we're getting it off our boats and bringing it through with the little boats. And we're headed to Chukaluski with it. When one of the guys on the island, we got spotters all over everybody right, right, right. in the island. Yeah. And, yeah. 
You know, the, I've are you familiar the with the tower? Too. I've heard in the in air Everglades too. City. Yeah. The observation I, tower. Yeah. Absolutely. I was one of the three people that built that fucking thing. Really? For Ernest Hamilton. He yeah. was he was a legend also. Yeah. Hamilton Stonecrafts. Yeah. And uh, his son-in-law, Billy Potter, the captain of my boat, and myself, Clark, who was actually Mark in the book, okay. the first mate. Okay. I'm second mate. Right. We worked with one of the volunteer firefighters who was a, of, the, of the Mitchell family living in Everglades who constructed and engineered it. We actually built that fucking thing. We'd have somebody sitting How up. How convenient. We have somebody <laughs> sitting up in it. You know? I mean, you can see the yeah. island all the way yeah. to Everglades from yeah. up there, you know, but... Um, that being said, it, it turned out one evening that there was just too much unsuspected traffic going on and off the island. And we decided to stick it in the woods overnight. Just hold. And in the earlier days, they built what uh, they described as a million-dollar pad. And by that, I mean they would find as high a ground within the islands that they could find at that time, depending on the tide, and start laying bales down on the ground and then stack the whole load onto a pyramid. I mean, in, in the middle of a, on an island in the middle of nowhere and then come back the next night or the next night after that and then load it back onto boats and bring it in when it was clear to bring it in. But the material that was on the bottom that they stacked everything on, depending on how the tide come up or how dirty or muddy it got, it was left behind. That was the million-dollar pad. That was it. I mean, you know, and today, and the prices as the years went on, it was probably $2 million worth of shit that was just sitting there, just left there because it got muddy. Right. Right. That's crazy. (laughs) When weeds started coming in, and this is in answer to your question, did I ever, you know, oh, yeah, there was a time, there was a point in time in which we had to put the shit in the woods because we couldn't bring it onto the island how we had anticipated. But we didn't use the million dollar pad technique. We went off and, and started breaking down dead branches and dead pine trees and did, you know, dead mangroves and building platforms in order to bucket brigade this stuff through chest deep water and put it on these pads that we built to keep it out of the water. I mean, we broke our asses to do this. I mean, it was not was, fun and games. Was there know? any way that you could pull a pull a bale off and not turn, you know, I mean, imagine there was, right? Or did they, so did it? How was the inventory controlled? Was well, there any? Because, like you said, a lot of that stuff is. Yeah, you know, no, interesting maybe. question. No, uh, and that comes in. That comes into play when when I get say. Okay, let's skip forward to me. I know it's hard to stay. In. Skip forward to me. There were two ways in which this worked. You could pay me one hundred and seventy-five dollars a pound, and I could go to Jamaica, Central America, or, or Colombia, or South America, and buy whatever it is you wanted, however much you wanted, for ten dollars a pound. And by the time that $10 a pound shit reached United States territorial waters, it just jumped to 500 to 750 a pound. So that's depending on, you know, what way they wanted me to do it. And there was another way with $145 a pound, you go get your own shit from wherever you got a connection, whatever you get it out here offshore from us. We'll take it and grab it and put it on your doorstep for $147. Well, most of them always opted for me just do the whole thing, 175 bucks, and go buy it, go get it, go bring it, and put it on your doorstep like that. Well, the way it works is, you know, and a lot of mis- a lot of common misconception is you bring this shit in, you take it to Miami, and you give it to the actual owners, and they pay you. Well, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, we need to get paid as soon as that load starts to sell. They have to generate the money in order to pay for that load out of that load. So it could be two weeks, two and okay. a half weeks or so before I even see any money out of that. So if I brought, so say, like big bags of money. I mean, I read the book, but 
thousands of pounds of money, literally. We were, we wound up having to, you know, and I get to that at some point, wound up having to stop counting it and start weighing it. Right. Because we were literally weighing thousands of pounds of cash, you know, because my paydays went from, you know, that first go, that first test run that I worked with my two Cuban partners in Miami. My first test run, they wanted me to go to Columbia, pick it out, buy it, make sure it was good shit and get it back here for them, you know, and do the whole thing from A to Z. That's how I don't know if you got to that section yet, but how I met the boss. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was that's yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got some good stories. You gotta, gotta read the book. I'd give it up. Yeah. You gotta I mean, read the book. This is this is true Southwest Florida history. And a gringo you know. going to Columbia. I've been there before. Yeah. It wasn't for that. It was incarnated for the beach. Right. And a wedding. But well, I was I was not easy to do. No. It, plus <laughs> when you're situated in a mansion that's on the side of a mountain. Uh, between Cartagena and uh, Banquilla Peninsula, Banquilla City, and then the next is Santa Marta. So yeah. he's got growers between Cartagena and Santa Marta that he's pull, that he can pull from because we're talking about literally taking mountain sides of you know Colombian weed from these people. Um, as fast as I could send boats to go get this shit was how fast it was coming out of there, I and mean, it was ridiculous. At one point, there were so many boats parked out here waiting to get offloaded. It was like a parking lot. <laughs> You know, and that's why I don't, you know, that's why I don't want to take anything away from Mr. Storter. But, you know, hey, dude, we're, we're, I mean, you have to understand the significance of what it was, was taking place. And what you saw by way of the aircraft and things like that were just these guys trying to get these one little bits of, you know, shit in, getting themselves caught up with law enforcement, you know. And we're thinking, you know, even back then, I don't know how, well, you said you got here in the 90s. If you remember, um, Port of the Islands used to be called Remuda Ranch. Mm-hmm. Remuda Ranch I don't was, remember the name of that one, but I remember. Remuda Ranch at that time wasn't a whole full-blown condominium complex type of thing. It was a hotel and a not really nice restaurant and a bar that we all, sure. you know, if we wanted to go out, we'd go there or we'd go to the Lions. Camp, Come up the city. Lions. <laughs> Port of the yeah, Islands. Yeah, <laughs> Port of the Islands. You know, but it was owned by a couple of Colombian dudes. Okay. And they were landing their shit on that private airstrip right there. Well, that came to an end, right. you know, but not just across the street down near it was the tram where all mm-hmm. those roads we're talking about were. Mm-hmm. So they just started landing them over there. And that's when, you know, the gentleman that we're speaking that of story, yeah. starts talking about those particular stories and how those, you know, yeah. Those guys were stupid enough to do shit like that. They drop the know? plane, the plane stays. Leave the plane. You off. make you make eight times, ten times what that plane's worth. You right. know, I did that with boat. I've done that with boats. A couple of guy, a couple of buddies in mine would get in and get go go in on a boat, three hundred grand a piece, buy a yacht, send it to Belize, and buy some really primo stuff. Maybe you know a thousand, two thousand pounds of it. Bring it back, take the boat offshore, and blow the bottom out of it and sink it. Done. <laughs> Gone. I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit. Jump away. But is it true? And I've heard this forever that there's a lot of holes in how <laughs> behind houses in Everglades, buried money. That I would very much doubt. Yeah. To be quite honest. But I, I remember even going down there in the early nineties. I mean, you had a, a little hot little houses, Chuckalusky Everglades, but they had these badass trucks. Oh yeah. And they they save some money. Right. Folks down there save well, some money. Well, see, the thing of it is, and people need to also realize that stone crabbing and that in and of itself is a very lucrative job. Right. I mean, we were pulling stones. Like I said, we had 6,000 in them fucking things. We're pulling 600 a day going to 600 here, 600 there, 600 there at all different depths and different lines of traps that are pulled in a similar fashion as if most of most of you people, I'm sure, have seen a show called Deadliest Catch. Right. 
and it's they're they're pulled up the traps in this in a very similar fashion only we're not throwing a grapple hook between two giant bags that's holding a rope we're reaching out with what's called a, called a cat's pole yeah i'm freezing your gnarlies <laughs> we're reaching out with a homemade everybody makes their own what's called a catch pole the right. pullers and right. you just grab the buoy and the line pull it through the block and attack on that thing that spins even on that big crab boat that thing that's spinning is this big around there because they're pulling rope they're pulling five eighths inch rope and what it does is quite literally is shaped like a pie pan like this and it grabs the rope between it and as it turns it cinches that rope and pulls on it but down here at the bottom is a little thing sticking out like that that kicks the rope back out so it doesn't continue to roll around that block they put theirs in a coiler and it coils it back up for them Ours are just coiling at our feet because we're using at the most 60 feet a line. Right. Because you don't want to fish in any deeper water than that. You know, because mm-hmm. now you're offshore, now it takes forever to pull a fucking trap. Right. Uh, but that being said, and the similarities in, with which, you know, the, the, the work was being done um, doesn't take away from the fact that it is ball-breaking friggin' work, man. And we had to do this work during the day. And then go off at night and, and move 800 or 1,000 bales that weigh 70 to 80 pounds apiece. You had to do the work during the day in order to work at night. Because that boat just couldn't you know, pay for itself by sitting there. You had to show cats. You had to show it working. You had to do one to do the other. And if that fishing didn't make a man out of you, unloading them damn freighters offshore will make a fucking man yeah, out of you in a yeah, hurry. That's crazy. But So you went through all that time. Let's talk a little bit about you know, how you, how they caught you and how that life was a little bit and kind of bring it full circle around to, you know, how, how you're doing today. And, right. and like you said, you're still super friends with people that were out there chasing you down. Yeah. You know, and the simple reason for that is and the likability about the story is simply the fact that we were family and generational and people have a hard time understanding, you know, how could you get your children involved with such a thing? You know, because they have this common, uh, this misconception about how it could take place. And it's not to say there wasn't any violence by other pot haulers here or over there or wherever. Of course there was, because they've got all their money tied up into this thing. And you screw with it, you fuck with it, and you lose it. They're coming after it. They're getting pissed. Well, when you're buying this shit for $10 a pound, you literally take some cocaine cowboy's money to the Caribbean, $300,000, which even to us was a weekend of, you know, long weekend of bar money and buy 30,000 pounds of Colombian red bud. And by the time it gets to his doorstep, it's worth $500 minimum a pound. I just made, I just turned 300,000 into 15 million. Wow. Minus my fee and my crew's fee for a job that size, which is about 5 million. You just made $10 million in eight days off of 300 grand. You think these fuckers are shooting at me? They can't give me money to go back fast enough, right? You know, because if you take that math and you divide that three hundred seventy, that original three hundred thousand dollars into nine million seven hundred thousand, you come up with a number thirty-two. And what that number thirty-two represents is the number of chances I have to get your next load in. I can lose the next thirty-one loads, but I get that thirty-second load in. They still made money. They haven't lost money. That's the ridiculousness of yeah. the price in, yeah. in, in not just the prices, but the reason why there's no violence involved. And not only that, if you think about it, what parent in their right mind would subject their kids to going offshore and meeting Colombian freighters and Jamaican freighters or Central American freighters if they ever thought they were going to get shot at? 
There is no parent in the right mind that would allow Maybe that to happen. Don't know, but they knew. But what, was what going they on, had right? to understand is that the people that I was turned on to, the inheritance that I got through throughout the Caribbean, were families as well. The guy I knew in Colombia that I bought literally millions of pounds of of, of Colombian redbud and and gold and and gold from. His father built the, the plantation and the home that he lives in, and he was family and generational as well. His father worked with the older generations that we all learned from. So it was all family wherever we went. People talk about cartel this, cartel that. Fuck cartel. You know, they're too busy dealing with cocaine. You know, when they found out that you could move this much and make just as much money right. moving this much as you can moving this much. You know, they pretty much backed out it's of no that shit. On that one, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but we had the ability and the capability and the wherewithal to still handle the cannabis and the marijuana, and there was still a lot of profit in it. So that being said, how to get to where I wind up jumping in and, and taking over the spot was that not why a section in a book where I wrote that we had worked 28 nights in a row, our crew yeah, did. Yeah, I remember that. And I did a rough estimate. I, this is just a out of my mind calculation to the tune of about 1.6 million pounds in 28 nights went across that 120 acre island. And during one of those nights, we moved, like I said earlier, 55 tons, which was 110,000 pounds and put it in like nine houses uh, all at once. So that, that ended my three day streak. So I was taking a couple of days off and like a dummy, I walk over and I, you know, to one of the houses that's being unloaded. And a lot of times if, you know, what would happen is the drivers, you know, uh, are never the own, the, are one, the owners are never the drivers. Right. The owners are never the owners of the vessels that are being used. And there's a reason for that. Um, the drivers would, the owners would come out while the house is being loaded the night before, load their van, their truck or whatever like that, if they could and drive it back into town and park it in the front yard and just walk and leave, go in the house and leave it loaded. And then on the two meter radio the next day, they would get their driver and, you know, tell them, okay, it's time to go. And they would know where in Miami to go. We would usually go off of Ken, off of Chrome Avenue, somewhere near Kendall. Right. Not, right. A, not as far as Homestead. Homestead. That's too far to go. But we were like in the Kendall area. Is it Redlands or that's a little bit too far. Too far. Yeah, too so far. We Kendall were more area. like Kendall Drive, yeah. Kendall. There's yeah. a lot of plazas and a lot of little strip malls right there. Right. And what we would do is the cars and the trucks and everything that was loaded would be go over and meet at that chosen strip mall, get out of it and go window shop while our part, one of our guys and a Cuban partners that actually owned the shit would point the vehicle out. And we develop what law enforcement now calls a dead drop. Our guys get out, go window shop. Their guy gets in it, go and loads it, brings it back. The reason for that being is that, the guy that drove the shit from Everglades didn't load the fucker. The owner did. So he doesn't know where the shit's at. Now he doesn't know where it's going in Miami and the guys in Miami can't tell him where it's coming from in Everglades. So there's a, always a buffer there. Always a buffer. Yeah. But when they did this 150, you know, 110,000 pounds, I can vividly remember three days prior to us working again, that three day session, one of the boss man, Daryl, handed me and buddy Jimmy a chainsaw and a wrecking bar and pointed to a brand new Winnebago that they just bought at 120 miles on it. He says, I want you guys to go in that Winnebago and strip everything out wow. of it from the windows down. Wow. I mean, take every, leave the curtains in the cabinets and all that shit, but everything from below, I mean, rip it out of there. So we took everything, the, even the, the captain's chairs. There was nothing to sit in. And they flattened it out. They put airbags in the shop in the springs inflated them so they put eleven and a half thousand pounds of bales in this thing 
right up to the bottom of the windows. And when you look at this thing, you can see the curtains and, you know, it just looks like a normal Winnebago. Now the bags, it's not slumped, you know, it's right, riding right. stock like it should. And for the driver, we just pulled a bail out so he could sit there in between and <laughs> drive this fucking thing, right? Well, I get over there and Daryl spots me. I just made 75 grand that night. In a night. In a night. Daryl, and I'm, then, back I'm then, 20. Back then. Oh, Jesus. That's, back then, that's, that's, that's like that's, crazy money now. Yeah, I mean, probably putting about a million in that's, your pocket for that's the night. <laughs> probably an average of seven years' pay to an average, you know, white collar worker. I, I remember as a deputy, I made 20 grand a year. No, 19.5. Yeah. When I first started, you, I've lost my wallet with that much. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, but two ways to go, right? It's <laughs> yeah. like Paul McCartney. I lost my wallet. I had a billion dollars in. Oh well. Yeah. Well, yeah exactly. <laughs> but um, what wound up happening was, you know, they loaded this fucking thing, and I decide, you know, okay, my day off. I'm gonna go over and see how things are happening at the house of this. And then Daryl sees me, Timmy, and he goes like this. Come here. He says he wants got got a favor. He wants to ask of me, and I went right away. I went, oh shit. Long story short, he wants me to drive this thing to Miami. Oh shit. Yeah, you because it can't go to the, the drop point because you get within 40 feet of this thing and you can smell it, right? So it had to go straight to the house that nobody had ever been to. Nobody in any crew in Southwest Florida that hauled pot to Miami for these for these guys ever met the other crew, right. ever met the other bosses. Only the big dudes did, you know, right? So I had to take this thing to that house and spend the day with these people. And I, he said, I need somebody that I can absolutely trust to do this because I need you to be there all day. When the load stops, then you bring a car full of money home for me. Okay, whatever. So I did that. I stayed over there and I, you know, I'm guided by the radio and they take me down Chrome Avenue, almost to Homestead. And they make a, I make a right hand turn and I go like four miles down this orchard road in the middle of nowhere in this or in these orchards and out and all of a sudden out props this medieval castle looking house that some cuban had didn't have brains enough to you know other than to build a castle because he wanted one i guess you know castle and uh i pull up along next to it and i get out and they start putting the shit under the house like this so i go in the house and i spend the day you know playing poker and shit you know and and uh, I drive this thing back, and Daryl pays me. And um, it wasn't too long after that; several weeks or so came Operation Everglades Two. Okay. That was in 1984. Okay, that's when you know the operation was a significant of a success. This time, the first one flopped. They did Operation. I don't know if Mr. Storter told you this, but the the first Operation Everglades One took place in 1983. Okay, two, over 250 federal agents from every branch of law enforcement descended on that little two island town of less than 500 people, and were going to affect arrests. Well, because they had senators, congressmen, and judges on their payrolls, they knew two weeks before this happened that they were coming. So there was nobody nothing around. clean. It was nobody around of any significance. So it was a failure. It was pretty much a flop. So here a year to the day, almost, here comes Operation Everglades 2. And this is now when the adults said, screw it, you know, 2 a.m. They're sitting there on the front porch waiting for the show to start smoking cigarettes. And then here they come. This is when there were more reporters came to that island than there were people to be arrested. Wow. And Life Magazine was one of the reporting um, papers there. And they wrote, this was this is what the front page looked like. And when you get into the very center of it, 
come across. So let me see if I can find it right here. Oh, yeah. Look at that. This is, Trouble this is Life Magazine City. that wow. says Trouble in Everglades City. And then this little line underneath it says a small southwest Florida ta town tarred with drug smuggling. And most of its 600 residents say, so what? <laughs> that's crazy and it goes on for an unprecedented even for life magazine 18 pages of an article that describes yeah. uh, describes a small town that is now mostly women and children and young men because the entire adult male population went to prison yeah i was gonna ask <laughs> is it so we when i when i got there and so i worked in a mockley two days a week and i worked in everglades city three days a week and it was the first time I ever been. I was a police officer, and I was teaching Dare at the time. Oh, okay. So I'd go into the elementary school and be start to teach Dare, and I'm about probably about I don't know, roughly ten years out of you know from from you know when things are really happening. Right. No, not even maybe that long, but and and the kids were just not not having the, the, the likings for the deputy. <laughs> they right. Listening. My my, you put my dad in jail. But I was like, I wasn't here. You know. But right. It's just. But after after we warmed up, and and I think you know things have obviously changed over the times. But I remember school teachers were involved. And oh yeah, people people told me stories about yeah, this teacher did this, this teacher did that. Right. And, well, when you stop to consider a town of in in Life Magazine said six hundred people, but even today the population isn't five hundred. Like five. It's no. not even five hundred yeah. people because, damn, there's only so much between the two islands. There's so much real estate. Right. You know, I mean, right. you can only get so right. many people there. Jamming in there. Yeah. Um, you know, any more than that, you'd just be stacking them on top of one another and mm -hmm. building condos mm -hmm. and shit like that. But it's, it remains small and, you know, you, you know, even to this day, but you know, you're right. And that's what, at, you know, during that time kind of helped in a way for us to identify who was who. If you came into town and you weren't recognized, everybody knew you were oh, there. They, yeah. You know, everybody yeah. knew what was taking place. You, don't, but, you're just, you just don't arrive in Everglades. No, no, no. Because no. you go to the, you go to the store and within two minutes, everybody's wondering, I remember being a police officer down there. That was a tough, it was a tough mission. Oh yeah. Earl Hall was the principal. Um, CW Sanders. Yeah. He, he wasn't, Sanders, a, he wasn't, yeah. Charlie wasn't a stupid man. No, no. But you had to be able to prove. Yeah, of course. You of had course, to see yeah. it in yeah. order to prove yeah. that it was taking place. And he, that was something he could never do. Yeah, it's tough. And yeah. guys would taunt him with brand new trucks. Of They'd go by and bang. And I said, nope, yeah. got one, another one by you, CW. Yeah. You know, yeah. and just screwing with him like that. Yeah. But he was just the dearest man. Yeah. He actually helped me um, when the property, my trailer was, that I purchased was sitting on. I had to move a trailer. He was, he was a handyman. Yeah. He was, a, he was a liked by just about everybody in town god Jack, bless his soul jack of all trades yeah so where where are you now okay back what happened um what wound up happening is um after having met these characters over in miami i want these people to get the book <laughs> yeah no um absolutely what wound up happening after meeting these characters and these cubans you know the counterparts in miami um after the operation everglades 2 took place and that was pretty significant operation when everybody in the anybody who was anybody who was visible at that time wound up going to prison over 250 people from miami to everglades to kentucky were taken during that operation but what the law wasn't taking into consideration because simply because they didn't have a, a clue was that the infrastructure was still in place the adults weren't the ones out there handling these 800 and a thousand pounds thousand bales two and three times a night it was mm -hmm. the kids doing that mm -hmm. you know and they had no idea that you know this was how it was set up you know, the third generation was us kids and the infrastructure was still there. So when George came back, 
hey, Timmy, man, they found me. It took them three weeks to find Timmy was all they knew and, you know, what I looked like. So it took them almost a month to find me, and they came to my house. I get a knock on the door, and here's this guy, George, I met at that house, and he goes, Timmy, we got work to do. He says, this backing up, can you do this? Right. And I didn't hesitate. I said, hell yeah. <laughs> Not right. even giving it yeah. a thought because yeah. I knew the process and every position that was used throughout the entire you know sequence of events it takes to do something as sophisticated as we were doing. But what I didn't know at that time was, where in the hell do I go? Who do I talk to? What country do I go to? How much do I, you know? And I had to find several of the older generations to get together and say, tell me how this is done. And that's how the um, it, the connections in the Caribbean were, were inherited to me. You know, about who to talk yeah. to. This is who you talk yeah. to. This is the price you pay. This you don't is, just walk up and go, here I am. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, well, I'm ready. No, no, no. And people ask me, how did a Midwest guy from my father was, say, 82nd Airborne. I grew up in North Carolina. Right. But primarily did four years of high school in the Midwest and, you know, between Chicago and Milwaukee because my father was a, a, a machinery salesman. And, you know, after my gig in high school, you know, I did a little stint with Sammy Davis out right. west. Um, and then I came back and went to Florida. And people are like, well, how does a guy from the Midwest just show up and all of a sudden jump into the crowd and start being one of the gang? Well, simply because the guy that the I boat. went down there, the guy that I went down there with, sister, was married to the to the guy that owned the only fish house on the island. He was a native. He ran the fucking joint. You know, so they knew him, they knew his sister, so his brother and his buddy's friend must be cool too. Yeah, right. And we were accepted right into the family. That's why I got down there and I didn't have a job right away or I didn't even go down there with any aspirations of hauling pot. You just hear the rumors is right. all it was. Right. Well, my buddy goes down there to work on a boat with Billy and they had a guy from Michigan working with him that they didn't really want to know anything about. He didn't want him around. And I was helping to build their uh, his sister's brand new house. And he said, well, if we get rid of this guy. Can we get Timmy on board? Mm. Oh, yeah. So they worked this guy about a week and worked him to death and he quit. And that's when I get on the boat. And that's when, you know, the, my first day, they imparted how it worked. You know, you get up at, you know, crack of dawn, you pull that first buoy, and then you work your ass off, and then blah, blah, blah. So I get out there, and my first day out on this boat, the sun's up. And the wheel bunks are in the wheelhouse, and I lean over, and I look, and, and Captain Billy's got a big grin on his face. He goes, Timmy, he says, we're not going to pull stone crab traps today. He says, buddy, we're going to hang out here all day long and screw around and fish and goof off and unload a pot boat from Columbia later on tonight. And that was my initiation. <laughs> to this thing. 30, 15 tons was the first time yeah. I bush boat I ever unloaded. And the second day going to work, same thing. We didn't pull traps, 22 tons. The When's the first night. day you got, like, your, like, the cash in your hand? You were, like... When you like got a like a chunk of cash and a like, week after a that. week after we did those two back to back jobs, I got paid at that time what was called rookie pay. I got right, five thousand dollars a night. But, yeah. And I thought, score, man. <laughs> you know, I mean five I got ten grand. That's a that's a year's salary. Sure, sure. You know, in those yeah, days for a blue collar yeah, worker. Yeah. And I had given up a machinist job that I learned out of high school to come and do this. But skipping forward now. Now that the captain knew he had a crew that was willing and able to do the work, now I'm getting paid according to the size of the load. I'm making anywhere from fifteen to seventy-five thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a night, and we're working two, three nights in a, you know a week and shit like that. But skipping forward again, till now George is knocking on my door, wanting okay, get back to work. So I get everybody and I put everybody back to work, and we changed the program a little bit. I had um, one of my dearest friends was a national park ranger, who's on my crew. Right. He, 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 he introduced me to uh, the government, their uh, U.S. government's counter surveillance technologist who was an, a Cuban guy in Miami who was selling them their work, their hardware. 
I was buying better, uh, as good as, if not better equipment they were buying because our war chest was much bigger. I had, I had night vision, which was just coming into play at that time. It wasn't a full fledged flare, you know, infrared. It was starlight scope that was coming out of the Vietnam era, Mm -hmm. you know, but they were still, I mean, they worked perfectly. Uh, We had parabolic microphones that you could hear eight, you know, three miles down the shoreline. If, if a guy was sitting in the bushes and farted, you could hear three miles That's down crazy. the shoreline, you know, and shit like that. Polaris scanners, which you're probably familiar with, mm-hmm. when you key it, all you have to do is key the mic. And it and the diode would point to exactly what direction that key came from. So we didn't have to talk. We could just go, okay, he's over there. Because we're running dark at night, you know, and shit like that. Yeah, right. Well, they approach me. I go to Columbia for the first time. I buy the load. I get it in. We start working, and now, the uh, what's important is, and I and I noticed this when um, Storter. I keep forgetting yeah, store. Yeah, store. Cap, I can for, forgive it's me, Cap. Tough, if you're watching, Cap, forgive me. Yeah, I'm, I'm terrible with it's names, a t- but it's a tough one at the end. He showed a picture of them standing with these bales out in front of the Collier County Courthouse, and they just like bags. They looked like giant white bags full of. You know, they weren't compressed in any way. Right. Those in the original days were what we called pillow bales. They weren't compacted. They weren't the bale, the hard compacted bale that everybody knows today. Right. And the reason for that was because we were involved in the evolution of that bale. And quite simply, what was happening was those pillows that you saw that were they were standing next to a pile mm-hmm. of. Um, we don't know how many times have these things been handled before we get them. And some of them have got cuts in them. They're leaking. They're not compact. And there's buds and the seeds and the stuff and during those days. And, and anybody grew up in those days knows it was seedy as shit, right. you know. And it was a mess. So we'd unload these freighters onto our boat, bring the shit in and offload it onto the little boats. And we'd spend hours of that night cleaning and scrubbing and going with screwdrivers in the cracks and getting these seeds and shit out of it because it was a mess. And we finally wound up taking out rolls of visqueen, lining the entire bed of the boat and duct taping it down. So when we got done with the load, there was no sweeping it in. I was literally sweeping the shit into piles and taking an ice shovel and throwing it overboard. And I probably dumped more shit out of my boots than any 50 men could smoke <laughs> in their lifetime. It was just nasty. Yeah. So the adults, after a while, you know, we just take this, you know, plastic and, you know, wad it up and put a heavy chain and an anchor on it and throw it overboard. Yeah. You know, clean job done. done. But what wound up happening was at that time was the 80s. We're coming into the 80s. And the advent of the commercial and household trash compactors, you started seeing them on the commercials and yeah. shit. Well, they said, okay, here, wait a minute. They went and got these, uh, these, these industrial compactors and went down there and said, look, here's what you fucking need to do. That's when they started using putting small amounts in and compress it, put small amounts and compress it. Now the bales are coming out almost the same weight. They're using this. They're all the same size. You know... Because, I mean, when they were those pillow bales, you could get them from 40 pounds to 110 pounds. I mean, it didn't, it was no rhyme or reason. So now they're easier Plus to stack. Size, you know, yeah. Size. And like, there's nothing to grab hold of. Right. So now they're all the same size, equal size, equal weight. And now because of their stackability and their movability and, and in, order, and, 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 and in order to do the job a lot more rapid, the weights became heavier. The pay mm-hmm. became more. The jobs became bigger. You know, and that's when we took over and we started doing things, you know, in, in a different fashion by changing up the boats. We stopped using the um, the the, uh, the well boats. We were using T-Crafts and the Morgan's boats. 
And every single boat that was used and every crew, now I have, there were five crews. There was Everglades, Goodland, Marco, Naples, and Pine Island. There's as little, as few as 50 guys at the fewest on each crew. Now we're talking about 20, 40, 100 plus, 150, 160 of these type of boats that aren't just parked in everybody's front yard. Yeah. They're in the garages yeah. and they're in barns, they're in hiding because the law enforcement's not stupid. They're rolling. You know, they know that, well, you know, as a Marine Patrol <laughs> officer, what what these boats are obviously being used for. Right. But, um, you know, that being said, um, what we what we would do is, um, and um, um, we decided that, you know, I said, look, if, if you know, you're, you're using 235 horsepower Evan Roots, which at that time were the most powerful, most, most dependable yeah. engines that were yeah. available at that time. Everybody that had a T-Craft or a Morgan used an Evan Root, a 235. Why? Simply because we didn't work like the older generations. We didn't have 10, 15 different mechanics. You know, you call right. your guy, he comes and works and wrenches on your shit. No, we had one mechanic. He had four guys working with him. And what we were actually doing was we were buying brand new Evinrudes on, with the crates. And between all the crews, we knew every backwater guy there was working out there between Everglades and, and Pine Island. And we would supply them with a brand new 235 Evinrude. They would break them in for us. Okay. And even the Mercury engines, sometimes the guys would prefer a Mercury because they're a workhorse. I mean, yeah. they take a lot yeah. of RPMs. Yeah. And it only takes between an Evinrude or a Mercury, you know, 10 hours and it's considered broke in. But we would allow these guys to use the boat for 20, 25 hours, you know, for whatever. And then, you know, call Sammy and say, hey, he would send two guys, take that already broken in motor off, put it in a crate, hang a new one on it for that one to be broken into. Okay. So when somebody called and said, dude, I got a problem with this and that or whatever. And if it's not a matter of a fouled plug or a, a fuel line or fuel injection or a, a fuel filter or something like that, you know, it was simply if that fucker left you sitting, get it off of there and get a new one on there. Yeah. So Sammy would send two guys and we take take that motor off and put a new one, hang a new one on there already broken in. Yeah, that's because you can't good. hang yeah. a you can't hang a new motor on there. You'll blow you'll yeah. blow it up. Yeah. So yeah. we were getting all these guys to break in motors for us that's and, pretty and use one mechanic and a system. Yeah, and that's that's part of the that's all part of the sophistication of how it all took place. But ultimately, what wound up happening was um, I was doing a fifty-seven thousand pound load with a crew of in Mar in Pine Island. And a crew and my Everglades crew, I was going to split it into, you know, half here and half here. Well, um, as it turned out, uh, as you know, as the story goes, um, one of the guys that was working on our crew was was um, one of the well-known family members of Everglades City. I'm not going to say any names because it's not, you know, I don't want to be you know rude in that way. Um, only because I, you know, even though they were responsible for what they were, I'm not going to. I'm not sitting here. It's not your. It's not my place, place to point a now. finger at anybody because yeah. you know I'm happy with the way things turned out. Right. I got a life, but dude, I'm sitting in the same fucking room talking to you when I should be in prison for life. You know, thank you That's, for that yeah, much, anyways. Happen, you know, yeah, but yeah. Um, what wound up happening was, you know, and my crew when they're not expected to work, I don't give a shit what they're doing. They're off doing all kind of crazy shit. Even we were doing crazy shit yeah. just to spend money. We were taught how to spend money without having anything to show for it. And we came up with some really creative ideas. <laughs> That's crazy. That's I mean, crazy. I mean, just unloading ungodly amounts of cash yeah. just, I mean, just to get rid of it. But, um, but that being said was, um, you know, he, well, this one person in particular was in Colombia doing a job of his own, doing cocaine or some shit and he got in trouble and got thrown in prison. U.S. government knew where he was from, knew he was part of the crew. 
went down there, made a deal with him and got him out of that Colombian prison, put him right back to work with us. Wow. That's what he boring. wound up working on was one of the chase boats. We called what we chase boat is what we have now. Um, I can give you pictures that correlate to a lot of this story when you go ahead and air this thing, mm -hmm. um, which would be kind of cool because yeah, you know, you'll, cool. you'll understand yeah. this, what a chase boat looks like. And it's literally a go fast boat. In my case, it was a, it was with Chris Craft Scorpion with two 200 horse Mercs on it, you know, 400 horsepower that would do probably 70 mile an hour before your ass even hit the seat. When you're coming off for your mothership and into shore, you've got that 40 tons on there and you're moving four knots and you're what captain's busy. He's doing his job. He's on the radar and he's watching and he's, you know, trying to make sure he knows where the boats that are working with us are. We're on the back of the load opening one up smoking one trying to figure out if this shit's worth keeping some or not you know because <laughs> we'll tell the crew when we get back hey this is some good shit you gotta have some Pull of this off, right yeah. so um he's dialed in doing his thing and if it looked like we had 50 mile radius and you're familiar with how they work yeah, like, yeah. all the way down yeah. to five miles you know and if that thing looks like it's gonna approach you we get on that chase boat and go off into the night and let him have the goddamn boat yeah because billy didn't own it, his dad did and the reason why the owners are never in the cars, trucks, vans, or boats is simply because if something like that does happen and it's real, we get on the radio and say, hey, call Huber and, you know, the boat's gone. Huber would call the law enforcement or Marine Patrol at that time and say, look, I my just looked out at the dock. My, my shit's gone. <laughs> boat's gone. That relieves him of any responsibility to what that boat or vessel or car or whatever's been involved in. Sure. And eventually, after it's been used for evidence, they get it back. You know, that was, the, that was one of the, you know, just the little, little secrets little of the drag. To do it, yeah. Well, you know, the chase boats, you know, we had a way to get out from offshore, but the guys driving back and forth in Miami all day long. I mean, there's cars and trucks. We're moving 40 tons of shit by daylight. So you go across, you go across 41. 41. Yeah, 41. You know, and Nothing I told else you. really there, right? How yeah. else you got to get yeah, there? Yeah, you exactly. know, there's only, and the thing about it was, hello, there's only one way into Everglades City and one way out. <laughs> There's one way to Miami from Everglades City. And that's what I told these investigators. I said, do you understand the geography? I said, they didn't send that shit over there on the backs of pelicans and fucking porpoises, man. They went down that one goddamn road. I mean, come on. And my guys are waving at yeah. you all the time. We're doing it, you know. But at all being said, what wound up happening was, this, you know, the guys driving have a way out as well. We have anywhere from, depending on the size of the load, 8 to 10 to 12 to 15 what we call spotter drivers that paid $5,000 a day to drive to that plaza and back to Everglades City in staggered formation all day long. Now, if you got stopped for any whatever reason, you're instructed to wait for whoever stopped you to get between their vehicle and yours, throw yours into reverse, and slam the holy shit out of this guy's front end He's not going anywhere, you yeah, know, but you're not going to outrun his radio. Yeah. So you need to haul ass and get out of sight of him where one of these 15 spotters is already sitting, waiting to pick you up. Right. Leave it in the middle of the road and go. Right. Because by that time, the owner of that van truck or whatever's already called it in is stolen. <laughs> you guys got that down. <laughs> you know, so he'll get his shit back. Yeah. But that's just how that works. Yeah. But. Here we you are. Get your, get your get your plans going. We're splitting the load in, in Pine Island, and I decided to go and hang with the Pine Island crew because I hadn't worked a whole bunch with them. I knew the guys in Everglades. They knew what the hell they were doing. I didn't need to fuck with that. So we get up there, and, you know, and we're back off in the, on, you know, Pine Island Road off of BFE yeah. where nobody should be. And the locals know where this this old roadway grown over back to this falling apart dock was in the middle of nowhere. That's where we're going to load. We pulled a box truck back in there to get it loaded. And 
we probably got maybe 60, 100 pieces. The boats were coming, were unloading, were unloading like this, and all of a sudden they could stop coming. And the chatter on the radio stopped. And the guy, I could spot her out by the road, gets on the radio and goes, Timmy, he says, a car just pulled in here and it, you know, backed out, turned around and went back the other way. And I'm thinking, man, you know, that ain't right. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody should be out here, man. That ain't right. So I walked up there, you know, I walked, you know, through the trees to get up there. And as soon as I got out there, I said, okay, what, you know, tell me. So as he's imparting to me again, I look behind me and everybody that was back by the water is now standing behind me because they know this shit ain't right. Yeah. this guy didn't get three words out of his mouth trying to explain to me about the car that he saw come in here and you could hear what sounded like 25 vehicles coming down the road man the, the tire noise right. and all of a sudden you could see the headlights you know there was trees but you could see the headlights in the road now if, if you ran this way there was a pine tree forest that you could just haul ass and, and go tear ass and go if you ran this way, there was about three acres of palmetto brush yeah. that wasn't any higher than four feet that you had to crunch in your way through. And I got surprised. I mean, I was already standing on the palmetto side of it. And they, I mean, they jumped on us so quick that everybody took off running toward the trees. I took off running to the palmettos. Palmetto. I, dude, I didn't get from here to, to the doorway. I didn't get 15 feet. Now I'm they were crunched on down there pulling in and they're yelling, there's guys running over there. There's guys running over there. We'll go get them. I was squealing and everybody's running after everybody, you know, and I'm sitting here listening to the show. I'm 15 feet away from this guy in a tan Bronco. And I'll never forget it because we saw that very same tan Bronco cruise around the parking lot of the hotel where we all met. Ah. And I'm thinking, oh, Christ, okay, here we go, you know. So, but I could see under the bushes, I could see this guy's feet. And it's still a little bit dark out. Sun's coming up in about an hour, you know, and I got to figure some shit out because go. I'm right there. You know, the sun comes up, this guy's, they're going to see me, man. There's no hiding, right? So I could see the guy's feet. As soon as he'd opened that Bronco door, the interior light would come on. I could see his feet. He stepped out and looked around and got back in and he backed out and drove off couple minutes later now a car pulls up out front in the roadway and i can hear this car back comes the bronco and this guy's in it winds up being david waller the guy that i mentioned to you and i name him by name yeah. in the book yeah the fdle agent yeah. who ultimately became friends of mine we were working on a, actually working on an eight series mini documentary with prime when he passed away in november uh, yeah. um but um that aside he gets out of the Bronco, shuts the door, and the guy out in the road, I can hear him yelling, Yo, where are you going, man? What are you doing? He says, well, I'm going to walk back in there and see what we got. And the guy in the road says, hang on, I'll go with you. Score. I'm thinking these two assholes are going to walk I off into the it. woods, man. I'm done. But the car was still running in the road, and I, you know, now it's light out. Now I got to go. I got to do something. Yeah. And I'm thinking if I look up over these bushes and there's somebody still sitting in that car, one of two things is going to happen. He says, I'm going to I'm gonna tackle and beat the shit out of this motherfucker or run, or he's going to grab me, catch me, shoot me, or some shit like that, you know. I put my head up like that. There was nobody in it. Boy, I took off like I shot, man, and I went across the road and in the bushes, and I ran till I couldn't I couldn't breathe. I ran that. I ran. I don't you, even know how far I ran. Distance. Dude, I dove <laughs> under a tree. I covered myself up with branches and bushes and all kinds of shit, and I laid there all day long listening to the helicopters going over and you know the shit going on out you know a mile or so away from me and they're dragging my box truck out of the trees i can hear the branches banging against the empty sides of it and shit and i sat i laid there all day long it's just starting to get dark and i'm doing this 
falling asleep. And I got all this covering on me. And I hear this crunching like footsteps. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I laid there for long enough and I've been there all day and nobody saw me. So nobody chased me. So I, you know, I opened my eye like this and I look over and there's a fucking bobcat. Oh, shit. 80 pounds if this bitch was a pound. And it was, was an arm length away from me doing this, you know, sneaking up on me because it saw my eyes doing this. All I could see. And all of a sudden, now I go thinking to myself, you know what, motherfucker? I spent the night, you know, getting away from the law, running my ass off, only to get eaten by this damn thing. And I'm thinking, it happened. no fucking way. So yeah. all I could, all I could think to do was come busting out of the leaves and scream as loud as I could. And that goddamn thing, it shot three feet in the air, turned three somersaults, and took off like it was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Funniest thing I ever saw. That's when I decided it was starting to get dark. I'd walk my way out by the road, walk off the road, three miles down the road to a fish house. And, you know, at that time, of course, no cell phones. See what happens then. And I get to the fish house. They're still open. It's like 2.30 in the morning. And out in the parking lot is the only telephone booth that there is. And and there's lights on in the fish house. And I'm thinking, okay, there's somebody still here. Now, how in the hell am I going to get? out to that phone booth without somebody seeing this one guy in the middle of the night. And this, my luck, here comes these two shrimp boats pulled in and unloaded their catch and all the guys on the boats lined up with the phone to take the call for their ride home. That's when I got in line. Nice. Called a cab and he came and got me and took me to a hotel room. And I, that was, you know, yeah. that got me out of there. But then it wasn't a, a week or so afterwards came the investigations and, David and his Your guy name was and, all over it. <laughs> yeah, I was what was yeah. considered managerial. Yeah, you, you know, and yeah. my four indictments totaled 160 years mandatory wow. to life and 16 wow. million dollars in fines. Wow! And a very particular sequence of events needed to take place in order for me to be having this conversation, yeah. which you're going to get right out of here. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of story that I tell on different podcasts, and you know, and even a, you know, the cast such as yours that. You know, there's 30 years of storytelling to tell, and I just didn't have the room in the book to do it. I yeah, no, I know. We sit here for, it's been an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah, I'm just getting we're just started, like, yeah, man. Yeah, get going. <laughs> um, let's do this. In a, in a nutshell, where, you know, where are you at today, real quick, okay. and then we'll, we got to wrap it up a little bit. But sure, nutshell, where you're at today, why you're doing what you're doing, and, you know, maybe you talking to people and how it, impacts you right right no absolutely three minutes i totally get you and um i'll start off by saying one of the reasons that i chose to write the book and that the older generations had gotten together and and with their nod of approval you know because like i said earlier i would never disrespect anybody by saying something or involving them in something that you know that they didn't agree to well we all agreed that you know somebody should tell this story and somebody ought to tell it who was there who knows the whole in and out and it can tell it truthfully and honestly without embellishment, because what embellishment would do, it would do two things. First of all, it would sound so ridiculous that it wouldn't be, you know, it would just, people wouldn't even pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Second of all, it would put it beyond the realm of human possibility. Then that's the edge on which we were working right on the edge of human possibility right. for, to do what it is we were doing. So that being said, um, what I like people to understand is how this industry could have been done in a nonviolent fashion and done by families and kids and generations of families and kids throughout the Caribbean. When 
having had a conversation six years ago with the uh, supervisor for Homeland Security for South Florida and told him that how does it feel having taken out an industry out of the hands of people that never fired one fucking shot at you? Look what it's turned into now. You know what he had to say to me? I wish they'd just legalize it. There's a lot of people who say that. <laughs> this was seven years ago. Yeah. But what ultimately wound up happening and what I'd like to have people take away from this book is not only that, you know, the, the nonviolent nature in which this industry could be done. And what I also like them because they now have a legal choice to make. Sure. You know, do I want to try cannabis? Do I want to try it for recreational purposes? Or do I want to try it for a medical issue or medical purposes? You now have the legal right and legal choice to do that. How is you, what's going to be your basis for that choice? Is it going to be the death and the mayhem and destruction that you're seeing taking place on the Mexican border, which, by the way, was the result of having taken it out of South Florida's hands right. and given to the cartels in, in Mexico, Mexico? Because they didn't want the Caribbean weed. Mexico wanted to sell their own. Right. So when in the early 90s, when they just did away with us, Caribbean marijuana now went to North Africa and into Europe. That's where that market went. The Sinaloa, they've been around forever. Nothing new about these guys. Giardo, he was who was the founder, the beginning of all the all the cartels in in, uh, in Mexico. They could grow the poppy, the the poppy for the heroin. They could grow the marijuana, but they couldn't grow the the uh, the coca plant. So they had to get the cocaine from Colombia. And when when Escobar got killed, that's when Gerardo went down there and took over. And now you had to buy your shit from him. That started the whole mess on the border. You want to, and then I told this guy from Homeland Security, I said, look, when you said legalize it, I said, it, you know, he said, how would you, st I asked him straight out, I said, please tell me in, in you know, as honestly as you can, what percentage of, of, of um, um, success do you think with regards to interdiction of marijuana on the southern border is? What do you think your success rate is in percentage? And he didn't hesitate. He said, maybe 1%. Oh. And I said, thank you. I said, that makes me, then that lets me and everybody else know exactly you're not making a dent in it. So he says, well, how would you stop it? And I said, we'll legalize it. I said, you show a picture of a medically graded bud, you know, all glistening in all its goodness. And now that they're beginning to understand that it has some medicinal pro properties to it, even the United States government knew this in the 70s. They're still doing tests and growing it at the University of Mississippi, which is another story in itself. Or show them a picture of this poor Mexican guy who's got this bale on his back and he's trying to get to the Sonoran Desert practically dead and not getting it there in lieu of his family being held otherwise. You know, which do you think they would point at? They're going to point at this one for Christ's sake. So legalize it and take the poof out of it, take the demand out of it, and give it to the people of the United States and allow them to make a, a, a profound choice finally. Yeah, I, you know, that's that's a huge uh, another another topic for another day. Right. So but yeah, that's a huge um, controversy right now. Right. You know, I, I know I know I get into it. Not not so much in a, in a negative way. I, I'm just concerned about the folks that, you know, get the card and get the legalization of it for the improper reasons for the but, recreational but, yeah. aspect but, but, of it but I that's mean. that's like that that's like that with any type of medication right so if you're if you're on a medication and you're going to the you know the doctor to get it in a Ill illegitimate way that's right. problematic if but, your doctor yeah, shopping yeah, like yeah, they used to do like for that, that right yeah, sort that's, of that's but, where I'm at. no and i understand yeah. that and i and i don't and i do not disagree with that but what yeah. i would like to uh, if i don't do it any other way and i can't 
articulated in any other fashion than if you want to make this choice, what would you rather have going through your head? Would you rather know that you're by doing this, you're not contributing to what's taking place on our southern border? Because the, the cannabis that you're that you're being offered to you is grown here in the United States by people who care. You're not contributing to that market whatsoever. What I would like you to understand, what I would like you to know if you're trying it for the first time is envisioning that cool Rasta guy standing out in 200 acres of virgin bud in his cutoffs and his dreads and all and, and just, you know, having the time of his life, just, you know, taking care of the crop and taking care of the bud or the little Colombian dude and his family in his white cotton hat and cotton blouse and cotton pants out tending the buds and doing doing, you know, and taking care of nature in its mm-hmm. own way. Would you rather have that homespun feeling of nonviolence or would you rather have what's taking place? Yeah, the violence is definitely a, a no-go. And we know? proved yeah. through the writing of this book and the telling of this tale how it could be done for over three generations in a nonviolent fashion. Now, only one time in the, all the years that I was involved in this as a kid and growing up and traveling the Caribbean and meeting all these different connections in Jamaica and Central America and Venezuela and working with Noriega three times. That's that's another story for another time. um, And knowing that it can be done, I only saw a gun once. Only once did I ever put a gun in my hand and that's only because the first time I went to Colombia, this crazy boss man that I went with who was a card. I mean, the guy was a hysterical. I mean, he was just a really a jolly old guy, you know, so nothing, there's no, nothing cartel whatsoever about him. It's just that it was human nature for them to grab a gun when you left the house. Yeah, that's it. That's you it. know, and that, yeah, but that's that it. being said, you know, Tim, I really appreciate it uh, coming in and, you know, giving us, giving us another perspective. I take it from a law enforcement perspective. So, right. You know, you coming in and just telling us how it is. And we, and again, we could go for hours. It's great. Oh yeah. But your information, I, I can't thank you enough. Oh, it's, it's no, been great. it's been my pleasure. Yeah, always, I, always welcome into the studio. Thank you for yeah. uh, giving me the opportunity yeah. to rebut. Yeah, it's know? been great. No, it's been great. <laughs> yeah, no, and Captain Store, I know he appreciates it. He's been around seasoned professional, so he knows, you know, how everything right. goes. So, yeah. And like I said, um, and I don't know if I said it on, you know, before the show started, I have nothing but utmost respect for our law enforcement yeah, we, and the agencies in which we're involved in my arrest because ultimately you know they did the fair thing they did the right thing you know by us you know by giving us the opportunity to not spend the rest of our lives in prison for something that they were you know over a battle that they were losing and they knew they were losing yeah, no, i know but, and it's, uh, it's but a, i, I thank know, you sincerely yeah, no it's great and thank you for calling and, and getting in all right 239 uncensored everything southwest florida and beyond and let's get this saltwater cowboy book let's uh get it I, amazon you know, like said, amazon audible uh, audible yeah oh, that's a great way to do it there's if you're a driving. kindle it's, that, yeah, yeah that's great the Fantastic. guy who does the audible did mostly stephen king's work yeah. he has a he's a very cool dude yeah, so no. I, I think you'll love it again thank you all right we're gonna be out so we get a little fist bump in the middle we are here we out. go all right take care y'all good please make sure to download and listen to us on apple spotify and google podcasts And don't forget to like and share on social media. This has been a Studio 239 production. That was fun.